This morning, we're starting a new sermon series that'll last for seven Sundays, uh, entitled For the Life of the World. And it'll, we'll end right around the start of our Lenten season, going into Easter. So um, we'll have seven sermons, and we'll finish right up around mid-March. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah, the 29th chapter, and also 1 Peter. And we'll read our sermon text this morning. We just finished a three-sermon series on stewardship. And so we talked about stewarding our time, talent, and treasure. And then kind of like the wrap-up of that is like what it means to like steward our lives as Christians, right? Like what it looks like just to steward the faith that God has given us. And connecting that to our church's vision, which is to share the love of God for the life of our community. When we thought through that um, mission and vision, originally it was to share the love of God for the life of the world with the idea that God has saved us for a reason, and we'll get into that in a minute. But <clears throat> So that's, what, that's where this, this title comes from. So let's read in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4 through verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And then First Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, there's that phrase again, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this, your word. We know that your word is truth, and we uh, subject ourselves under its power and authority. Help us to glean the wisdom and transformative power of this text of Scripture. May our hearts be convinced by it, And convicted that we may leave this place differently than the way we came in. We pray all these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Well, if you haven't noticed by now, over the last few years, you have heard me push back on the notion that our Christian faith simply exists so that we can go to heaven when we die. Of course, salvation is not less than that. That is a true statement, that the salvation we've received through the Son of God is for eternity. So that is not not true, but our relationship with God is so much more than that. It is so much more than that. And it's a necessary critique because we tend to view our salvation solely in terms of personal atonement. And... um, I believe personal atonement, being made right with God, is the longing of every heart. 
that deep down there is an emptiness in every sinner who longs, whether they realize it or not, to be right with God. But that is not where the story stops. The story doesn't end there. Because if the story ends there, that all of this is just so we can go to heaven when we die and really has no implications for the world we live in and the lives that we're given to live and everything God allows to come into our stewardship as Christians and as human beings, it ceases to be compelling for a lot of people. Because there's this great big world around us, and I think as we've seen that the message of the Christian gospel has, at least in our culture in America, um, it has slid from the center in terms of the marketplace of ideas, if I can put it that way. And we're always asking, why is that? Why does it seem like the gospel, kind of like, like Christian faith, was front and center culturally, but has like slid from that place? It possibly might be that our message is not really that compelling because we've reduced it to just where we go when we die. There's this great big world around us that is both beautiful and broken that needs grace. And people see that and they want to know how this message about Jesus impacts the world around us, our culture, our community, our society. In other words, what is our salvation actually for besides just the assurance that we go to heaven when we die? Now, without that answer, we tend to view the world in one of three ways. Fortification, domination, or accommodation. The first is a view that looks at the world through the lens of us versus them. This is the fortification mentality. You know, we erect barriers against the world and shut the world out. It's kind of like a bunker mentality. The second approach is domination. This is the approach that engages the culture, fights against it, and condemns it. This is the culture warrior mentality. And then finally, there is accommodation. And this is a response to the culture wars. The accommodationist engages culture but completely loses their identity and jettisons the gospel in the name of not rocking the boat. And these are three kind of like, I don't know if they're traps we fall into or three kind of modes of relating to the world around us that we fall into. Now, Dr. Stephen Graybill, a theologian with the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, says that the common theme in those three responses flow from a sense of urgency, a sense of crisis, right? We see the world kind of descending into immorality, and you can look back 10, 20 years in, at least in American culture, and look at how far we have kind of fallen from our uh, Christian moorings, if you can put it that way, right? I mean, you can just look back and just see how rapidly the moral revolution in America has happened. And that is alarming. And that creates a sense of crisis. Now, what we might need, in fact, what we do need is a new perspective. 
a wider view of what it means to be in the world, but not of it. I believe God's message to Jeremiah and the exiles can provide the answer for us. Now, in the 6th century BC, Jews were carried off into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Some of you know the story, and if you haven't read the book of Jeremiah, you should. Um, But um, Babylon was a pagan and idolatrous empire. They were the superpower of the known world, and they were a wicked and evil culture. And they had their own ideas of what was right and what was wrong, and those ideas ran contrary to God's law. And Babylon demanded its own allegiance for all who came under its jurisdiction and power. So Babylon was not just a city, but Babylon was an empire. And at one point, they leveraged that power over the ancient world in the Middle East. And the temptation for Jews was to become either hostile to the culture or acquiesce to the culture, right? There's these two, I I mentioned three responses, but really you could summarize it as two responses, right? To see the culture, to hate the wickedness in the culture and become so hostile to it, or to completely acquiesce and just go along with the wickedness of our culture, right? There's these two extremes, and they certainly were faced with this dichotomy, and some did. Some became hostile, and some just kind of gave in, right, to the culture of Babylon. But God told them to do neither. God told them he didn't want them to do either. He wanted them to live as exiles. And the first thing I want us to see is that in our salvation, we're called to live as exiles. In Jeremiah 29 and 4, he says, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. And there's this idea that God himself was actually behind the scenes And God had technically sent them into exile. And they were viewing the culture around them as kind of being this this great disaster. And it was a tragedy when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. But God was actually behind it all. And he makes this statement to let them know that this actually was a part of God's plan. He says, to the exiles that I have sent into exile. In other words, he says two things. I'm the one who carried you off into exile. This is all really a part of my sovereign plan. And then secondly, he says, get used to this reality. Build houses and settle down. You're going to be here a while, is what he tells them. He tells them to live in the world around them without compromising, but not to be entirely hostile either. Now, Webster defines exile as the state of being barred from one's native country. Or an exile is a person who lives away from their native country, either from choice or compulsion. You know, as Christians, we're both at home in this world, and at the same time, we're strangers in a strange land. So how are we at home in this world? Well, you live here, don't you? (laughs) Right? I mean, you are at home here just simply because you live here. I mean, literally, your physical body is here in this world. So you live in this world. And at the same time, there is this tension knowing that this world and this wicked, wicked, uh, present wicked evil age is is not the way things will be forever. And so there is this tension. And God calls us to live in that tension 
And he doesn't want us to adopt a mentality of fear, right? The three different responses I mentioned really are responses that flow from fear, right? Fortification, domination, and accommodation. They're born out of fear. Fear will, we're being invaded. Fear that the world is going to win or fear that the world won't like us, right? Fortification, domination, accommodation. But the takeaway from verse 4 is that everything happening to the exiles was actually a part of God's grand design. That God had sent them into exile, and God knew the time of their captivity. In other words, God was the one who knew when the period of their exile was going to come to an end, but they didn't. And he says, I've sent you into exile. In other words, Babylon was not their permanent home, but they also had no no idea of when they'd leave, and God essentially says, it's all a part of my plan. We're called to live, in a very real sense, as exiles, holding the tension between the two, and knowing that God is actually in control of it all, that none of these things are happening apart from God's power, helps us to kind of relax for a moment, take a deep breath, and take a step back from that sense of maybe panicked crisis. I'm not saying crises don't arise for us in our culture and society as as followers of Christ, but it's comforting to know that God is ultimately the one in charge. God is in control. That helps us to relax for a moment, right? And when we do that, we'll see, secondly, as exiles, we're supposed to bless the world. Jeremiah 29.5, he says, seek the prosperity of the city. Babylon was a hostile place to people who worshipped the one true God, right? It was hostile. If you walked around Babylon for any amount of time, you saw the idols. In fact, I can imagine for a moment as the Jews are coming into Babylon, maybe they're shackled, maybe they're not, maybe there are Babylonian soldiers walking along with them because that's what empires did when they conquered another people. They would lead the captives into the city, right? And the military commander or the king would head it all up triumphantly as he came back into the city. If you were a Jew and maybe you were shackled, you were looking at the massive Babylonian statues and architecture and fortresses dedicated to the Babylonian gods, and you could not help but to think, you know, this was the end of my world. I mean, it was a shocking reality, and it probably also placed a lack of confidence in your own God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because you couldn't help but to think, if you were a Jew at that time, if our God is all-powerful, how do I make sense of this? How do I make sense of the world around me now, this new reality where it seems like the wicked are controlling things? And God's message to the exiles in the book of Jeremiah was, it only looks that way. It just looks that way. For a time, I've allowed the wicked powers of this world to seemingly control things, but in reality, I'm the one who sent you into exile. And the time of your captivity, I know the expiration on it. Right? Wicked people do what they want to do in their own mind, but God, at, at the end of the day, controls it all. I always like to say that, you know, the wicked win until the day they lose. Right? When, when their time is up, God snaps. He doesn't snap his fingers, but I mean, it, he metaphorically snaps his fingers and their empires fall. And Babylon did fall, but if you were living in that time and you couldn't see the future, 
It was shocking. And God says this. This is what he says. This is, and this might be mind-boggling. He says, this wicked, idolatrous, pagan empire that you are now captives of, I want you to be a blessing to. I want you to be a blessing to the wicked culture around you. He says in verses 5 through 9, essentially, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Take wives and have sons and daughters and, you know, settle down, essentially, for a while. You're not going anywhere. Settle down for a while. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. And don't decrease, but seek the welfare of the city into which I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. In other words, pray for this wicked city, Babylon. And here's the key. For in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. Now, Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, says, listen, he says, Judah is to prepare for a long haul because exile will extend beyond the present generation. The Jews in exile are to work for the well-being or the shalom, that Hebrew word in the Bible when it says, you know, it says the shalom, right? The welfare of the city. We translate it in English as welfare, but the Hebrew word is the shalom. Work for the peace of the city. And Brueggemann goes on to say that God is essentially telling them to work for the well-being of the empire and its capital city. And this may seem counterintuitive for worshipers of the one true God, but this small, vulnerable community of Jewish captives in Babylon had a large missional responsibility. This small, kind of beleaguered group of you know, Yahweh worshipers, they had a large missional responsibility because they were the people of God. They had the truth, right? They had... You know, their religion was the right one, right? They were worshiping the only true God, and God essentially tells them, shine the light in this dark place. What does it look like for us today, people who live this side of 270, to seek the welfare of our city? Maybe for different people, it looks differently. I'm not from St. Louis. I've been here about five and a half years, but I've learned about kind of the separation between the city and the county, and there's this Better Together initiative. And I, I'm just sharing with you my own thoughts, okay? So this is not like a message from your pastor that you must support the Better Together agenda, but I'm just telling you that as I personally have thought about the condition of the city and learned about its lack of welfare, it's troubled me. I was in the city for an appointment a few weeks back, and I, you know, said, you know, Siri, take me home. And it took me up the freeway that, you know, goes parallel with the river. And it, I, I don't know if it's like the 55 or the 44 or whatever it is. It takes you through Jennings and that, those other areas. And there was this beautiful architecture, but it looked like it had been bombed out. I mean, it looked like, like a bomb had dropped there. And it's such a stark contrast to the prosperity of this part of the city, Right? And as I started to think just for myself, I thought, what does it look like to seek the welfare of the city there? I mean, I'm just one guy. How can I personally affect change in a part of the city that is not experiencing shalom? And it's not. The crime rate is through the roof. There's no shalom there. There's not a lot of shalom there, okay? There's not a lot of peace there. And I thought, and I just thought to myself, like, how safe does my neighborhood have to be, right, before I'll, like, share some maybe resources, how good do my kids' schools have to be, right, 
before I'm willing to kind of like let go a little bit of some of the local tax revenue? I mean, I'm, this is just me thinking out loud. This is not like a, like a mandate I'm giving you. I'm just saying, I'm just sharing with you, like, like as I think about how God is challenging me as a human being who lives in relative comfort in West County, and I live in like the safest neighborhood I've ever lived in in my life. I'm from L.A., but like, I mean, my neighborhood's great. I live next to Creevecourt Lake. I mean, we lock our doors, but we probably don't have to, Right? Like, how safe does my neighborhood have to be? How good do my kids' schools need to be before we'll, like, spread some of the resources around? I don't even know if I know the answer to that. I just know that it's got me thinking about those things as I think about what it looks like for me as a citizen of this city to seek its welfare, not just the welfare of my municipality, who seems to be doing pretty good, right? Now, you have to find the answer for yourself, and this is not a... I'm not wagging fingers at anybody, but I'm just saying, you know, like, think about it. Because God calls us and challenges us in ways that often make us uncomfortable. Right? Like the Jews were thinking to themselves, I'm not going to be nice to these wicked Babylonians who destroyed my city and temple. No way. (laughs) And like God says, no, 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 Jeremiah, like, you tell them to be a blessing to these people to seek the peace and shalom of the city. Because as the city overall prospers, you're going to prosper in a way that I care about. And here's the funny thing. It was painful. Listen, uh, when you bless others, sometimes it hurts. It's a sacrifice. Sometimes you give up something to be a blessing to other people. To shine the light of the glory of God in a dark world may mean sacrificing, bleeding a little bit, right? Like the Son of God, right? Thinking, uh, oh, redeem people? Sure, sounds great. Die? Oh, forget it. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to hurt myself to do it. Right? We know that that's silly because that's not what he said. Right? He left the riches of heaven, he left that throne, that majesty, and came down to earth and suffered to accomplish our redemption. Right? So there might be some suffering a little bit involved. Maybe it might be a little bit painful to truly love other people. Maybe there, maybe there is something we have to give up a little bit to see the flourishing of our neighbor. And God calls us to share his love for the life of our community because like the exiles in Babylon, we have a large missional responsibility. We have a large missional responsibility. We're the people of God. Like, right, right, we worship the God of Scripture, which we know is the true God. That, that means we have a big responsibility to our neighbors. But can we really love our neighbors if we are risk-averse? Can you really love your community if you're risk-averse? If you don't want to open yourself up to any kind of vulnerability? I don't think you can. Because that's the nature of love. This is, this is the most amazing thing about God, who is a God of love. That the very essence of God's being as a loving, all-wise creator is that he opens himself up to hurt. Like that's, that's like, that's like flabbergasting, right? Like the God who is and always has been opens himself up to be hurt because the very essence of what it means to love is to, to be vulnerable to other people who don't reciprocate and can harm us and hurt us emotionally. 
And loving our community in practice may mean allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and maybe hurt a little bit for the welfare of our community at large. There is a missional imperative we have as God invites us into the larger public process of seeking the life of the world and seeking the life of our community. And he calls us to seek the welfare of our city. Number three, God has designed us to work in smaller economies. This is what I want you to see. God has designed us to work in smaller economies that point back to his blessing. Right? Jeremiah 29. Build houses, plant gardens, take wives. Essentially, the way we steward our families and jobs and the roles we're given, our own private economies of home and family and work point to God's economy of blessing. And in this sense, economy does not simply mean money. All right? In Colossians 1.25, when Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship, the Greek word there is oikonomia, which is where we get the word economy from. I became a minister according to the stewardship, the responsibilities, the things that God has entrusted into my care that God gave to me, right? Our lives point to God's ultimate blessings, And towards his economy of blessing as we faithfully steward and share. One of the things as we just finished the three sermons on stewardship is a word that was in the back of my mind as I talked about stewarding our time, talent, resources was the idea of like sharing. Especially if you have an abundance of time or talents or resources, right? Like the idea of like the impetus on us from God to share that economy of our homes and jobs and resources, to share it, right? Because in God's economy, things that prosper are meant to display his glory and blessing to everything around it. So you are not prospering and you are not blessed just for your own sake. Everything you've been given, you've been entrusted to, to point to the one who gives it all, who blesses all. And so that blessing can flow out of you, not hang on to fiendishly, tight-fistedly to everything we have, right? But to kind of open our hands back up to be a channel of blessing to the world around us. And I do want you to know we do steward your financial gifts well, and this week we're sending out our pledge cards again. And um, just some of the things we have done with your generous gifts, because this is a generous church. We have created a benevolence fund to administer aid to those in need. So we have money put aside for people among our ranks who, who fall on hard times. Um, and we also, this year, have several committees we're raising up. An outreach committee is one of them to see how God would direct us as a church to seek the welfare of our community. And we'll have some ways that we're, we'll be sharing with you um, that we believe God is calling us as a church just to love the community that he's called us to, not just right here in this zip code, but in the areas around us also. So we're faithfully as a church stewarding the economy that God has given to us, and we'll be looking for ways to carry out the God-given mission that we have. But in summary, I just want to say that Jeremiah 29 is the final instruction for how Judah was to behave in their newfound reality 
of living in the wicked and idolatrous culture of Babylon. And God says, don't retreat, don't hide, don't create walls in a bunker, a fortress, don't try to dominate the culture, nor should you accommodate or acquiesce to the culture, right? I want you to be a blessing while holding to what's true. And sometimes that means we critique the culture, right? You can critique the culture without attacking it. But here is the gift to kind of wrap all of this up together with a nice clean bow, all right? Here is the key to it all, the realization of this one truth. All is gift, right? Everything you have and everything you are is a gift of grace. It's all God's gift. And this prevents us from withdrawing into our own safe sectarian existence because when we realize that God has called us also to be gift givers, to be blessers, right? That's the responsibility we have to the world around us. And this is what Peter picks up on in 1 Peter when he calls Christians, he says, I write this to the elect exiles, right, of this wicked age. He calls, he uses Babylon now as a metaphor centuries later from the Babylonian captivity because he's essentially saying in the same way, live as exiles, in the world you've been called to live to, which often is just like Babylon. It's wicked, it's idolatrous, it's adulterous, but I want you to live as the exiles lived in Babylon. It's no coincidence that just a few verses later is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare or shalom, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I mean, this is like this promise from God. Be a blessing, and I promise you the hope that you looked forward to, that you expected from me, it'll come to pass. Right? That age of renewal and restoration is coming, right? When all wickedness will be judged and vanquished, And the world will finally come into the place that God wanted it to be in a new heavens and a new earth. That day will come. But until then, we live in the hope that God's plans for us, for welfare, shalom, not for evil, will come to pass. That future and that hope will happen. And until then, we live as exiles. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this word from Jeremiah as we begin this new series, For the Life of the World, and answer the question, what is our salvation for? It's not only for our own eternal bliss in your presence when we die, but, Lord, that we would be a blessing to this world that you did create for your glory, a world that is at this moment in rebellion against you. We pray that we would be able to live as the exiles in Babylon and seek the welfare of our community, locally and the larger community. All for your glory and the glory of your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.